Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Jacoby Cochran. I kicked in the door like Samuel L. Jackson in every Samuel L. Jackson movie and said, listen here, Jesus, motherfucker. That and more. But before that, you know, I've talked about Canapet a few times on the show, but if you haven't checked them out, it's the perfect holiday gift for your pet. Go to canna-pet.com, that's C-A-N-N-A-pet.com, and use the code RISK at the checkout for 50% off your order and give your pet the gift of good health for the holidays. Canapet is the leading CBD supplement for pets. The company makes all natural, organic, and non-GMO capsules, liquid, and tasty biscuits in maple bacon, peanut butter, and apple, or turkey dinner. The capsules and liquid can be mixed into your pet's food so you don't have to try to force them to eat a pill. This pet supplement is your go-to if your pet is suffering from pain, allergies, cancer, anxiety, arthritis, or seizures. But this is not pot for pets. The products are not sold in dispensaries because Canapet is made from industrial hemp, not marijuana. That means it contains CBD not THC. So it won't get your pet high. Actually, there's zero psychoactive effects. The product is fully legal and vet recommended for dogs, cats, horses, and other animals. Plus, they ship all over the U.S. The company also has a nonprofit organization, Pet Conscious, that works with hundreds of rescue organizations around the U.S. Its mission is to build a better world for pets, and they do so by providing free products, financial support, and fundraising. Canapet is a holistic alternative to pharmaceuticals and no prescription is needed to purchase you can order online at canna-pet.com with the code risk for 50 percent off for customer testimonials and more information go to canna-pet.com also the holidays are super busy so you don't have time to be going to the post office well stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. Then the mailman picks it up. Stamps.com makes it easy. They'll send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. They'll even help you decide the best class of mail every time. Print postage any day, anytime. Stamps.com is always open. We use Stamps.com at risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and that digital scale without long-term commitments. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com, enter RISK. Now here's the show. kids this is risk the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share i'm kevin allison this is funkalisto behind me now we are calling this week's episode live from chicago five 
Oh my goodness, this is our most recent trip to the great city of Chicago. I have always said that Chicago is one of the best cities in the United States for storytelling. So many great shows and organizations, so many wonderful people from different walks of life in that city. I always loved going to Chicago. The audience was a little rowdy. <laughs> always makes me just a little nervous when people feel free to shout shit out. But they were friendly, so it all worked out. We're going to start here with a writer and a storyteller who is also a bit of a crafts person. She makes her own um, bondage harnesses. <laughs> you can find her at emmaalamo.com. Here she is now at the Risk Live show that we did in Chicago at Lincoln Hall. It's Emma Alamo with a story we call Out of My Tree. <laughs> Beginning of summer 2014, I sort of kicked off the summer by cleansing my house of all of my recent ex-boyfriend's possessions. His clothes, his books, his sex toys, all of them went into a cardboard box, which I left on his doorstep in the dead of night, rom-com style. <laughs> Once his stuff was out of my way, I felt like I could finally start to see myself clearly again, because for the past eight or nine months, I'd only really seen myself the way that he saw me, as a woman who was inadequate and not very attractive or lovable. But now I was free of his opinions, and it was summer in Chicago, and I just lost 15 pounds to the breakup diet, and I was ready to fully embrace my single girl fantasy. So uh, y'all know that feeling when you reactivate all of your dating apps immediately after a rough breakup? It sort of feels like going into a Waffle House when you have a really bad hangover. You like... You look at the menu and you're like, man, I just know that all of these options are objectively really unhealthy for me. <laughs> but I just want them all so fucking badly right now. So it took me like a few minutes of swiping before I matched with my proverbial double smothered hash browns. His name was Eric and he was fucked up hot. He looked like Ryan Gosling, but like if Ryan Gosling had a bunch of shitty tattoos and an iron deficiency, <laughs> he was basically exactly my type. So I sent him a message and he sends me his phone number and after a little bit of texting, we decide to meet up and he is every bit as hot in real life. So this is the point in the story where I usually lie and pretend that we met up at a classy bar and uh, had a few cocktails before strolling into a park together. That is not true. There was no bar. There was no pretext. We met up in front of my apartment at 1130 at night uh, and we biked straight to a park together, him with a six pack of beer and me with a flask of gin, like a couple of fucked up teenagers. <laughs> But we were on a mission, and we were both already kind of fucked up. So we're walking through this park together, looking for the right shadowy place to sit down in, and we come across this big oak tree with some low-hanging branches. And I don't really think about what I'm doing when I ask him for a leg up. I'm just like, this is such a climbable tree. Why would we sit on the ground? 
So Eric follows my lead and we settle onto a cozy branch about 10 feet in the air. We uh, let the bottles that we're drinking fall to the grass as we finish them and we just sort of stare at each other hungrily. And we talk about... I, I mean, I have no idea what we talk about. We talk about like <laughs> music and our favorite movies and our shitty service industry jobs. We don't really have a lot in common, but we don't have to have a lot in common. Things are going great. So <laughs> pretty soon there's like a gentle breeze that rustles the leaves around us and there's a lull in the conversation and we're just looking at each other. And this would be the moment where there would be some sort of body language indicator if we were in any other location, right? Like I would be inching closer to him if I wasn't so preoccupied with gravity at the moment. <laughs> and he would probably like let his fingertips like gently graze my thigh if he wasn't too busy like holding onto a branch for dear life. <laughs> but uh, you know, we're not gonna let these physical limitations stop us. So I'm not quite sure who starts it, but pretty soon we're making out hard. It's going really well. <laughs> He's like pushing his fingers in my mouth and I'm like digging my nails into his back and he makes this little noise that is so fucking sexy and it's just like, this is happening. Like, this is amazing and hot and exactly what I wanted and so totally not the best idea that I have ever had. <laughs> Guys, there is just no way to have safe sex in a tree no matter how many condoms you use. <laughs> So I take my mouth off of him long enough to be like, hey, do you want to maybe climb down from this tree and come back to my place? But Eric is not interested in hitting the pause button long enough to relocate to a bed. He just sort of lifts a finger to his lips and goes, shh. <laughs> and that's really all of the convincing that I need. I mean, <laughs> I'm about to get laid in a tree. <laughs> This is awesome. I'm awesome. Like, I didn't even know that this was on my bucket list, but look at me now. So I'm sort of like, I'm sort of like bracing myself against the trunk with my foot and like holding onto a branch with one hand and uh, giving him a blowjob at the same time. And I'm learning all sorts of new things about myself because I did not think that I was that flexible. It was a position that would have been difficult to hold for more than a few minutes, but that didn't end up being an issue because within about 90 seconds, it was over. Or at least it was over for him. Right? Yeah, premature ejaculation. It's not ideal, but it is not a game ender. We are, we are both creative adults. There are so many other things that we could do. For example, he could get me off. Or he could, like, pretend to try to get me off. He could give me a fucking back rub. He could do anything. Anything other than what he does, which is zip up his pants, clear his throat, and say, well, I have to get up early for work tomorrow. <laughs> and before I can even say, bitch, you work at a bar, he scurries down the tree, mounts his bicycle, and disappears over the horizon just as quickly as he came. <laughs> So I'm just sort of sitting there, 
high and dry in the most literal sense of the words. Picking twigs out of my hair and trying to pinpoint the exact moment in my life when I took a wrong turn and ended up in an episode of Girls. Like, I almost had sex in a tree. This was almost the most amazing, affirming sex story I could possibly tell. But Eric ruined it for all of us because as soon as he got what he wanted, he decided to make like a tree and... Thank you. So uh, needless to say, I didn't go home that night feeling empowered. I didn't really know how I was supposed to feel when I got home that night, but I think it's pretty safe to say that it is not a successful date if it ends with you crying while masturbating. I realized that I'd never even gotten his last name, so I just saved him in my phone as Eric Blowjob Tree. And I, I tried to come up with some sort of rationale for why he behaved the way that he did. Like maybe, maybe he had some sort of like weird fetish about having sex in dangerous places and he had only discovered it in himself that night or something and he was overwhelmed. I don't know, maybe it was like a botany fetish? I don't know. <laughs> like maybe he was just so humiliated by his terrible performance that he couldn't stand to look at me for a second longer. All of those are bad excuses, but all of them would also be giving him way too much credit because a couple of weeks later, I revisited his OkCupid profile. And there at the bottom, he had made a little amendment. (laughs) He said, don't bother messaging me if you're one of those girls who considers herself a feminist. Right, this was his dating profile as a straight man. Who fucking knows? He said, we don't need feminism. (laughs) Women clearly already have equal rights. He then went on to explain that when us woman folk ask for things like, you know, the same pay as our male coworkers, or heaven forbid, the rights to our own bodies, we're actually being sexist towards men. Huh. So I just sort of sit there reading that last paragraph over and over again in this like mounting state of panic. I accidentally gave a men's rights activist a blowjob in a tree. Like, There's just like not a Hallmark card that could possibly convey the sympathy I felt deserving of. How is it even possible to fail that hard at having casual sex? The whole situation with him had gone from being so hot to so definitively unhot so quickly. It was like if the battery on your vibrator dies right when you're about to come, And then your vibrator tells you that it doesn't believe in feminism. (laughs) So a few weeks later, when the bruises on my ego had just started to heal a little bit, I went to meet some of my friends at a show. And as soon as I walk into the bar, I see him. Eric Blowjob Tree. (laughs) 
we recognize each other right away and for a second we just kind of stand there frozen with identical looks of horror on our faces and then he turns away and just sort of like sets to work pretending that he hadn't noticed me and I push it because that's the kind of person I am I like walk right towards him and try and get his attention and he just keeps moving away from me as though propelled by some sort of reverse magnetism I was worse than invisible to him and I'm not gonna lie it hurt it stung it made me feel so cheap and used and stupid and all I wanted to do was turn around and walk out of that bar and go home and drink myself deeper into my shame but wouldn't that be just what he wanted (laughs) wasn't I basically giving him the same power that I had given my shitty ex-boyfriend I was letting my own self-worth reflect his lack of respect for me I was giving his opinions way too much weight (sighs) sorry thank you so it sort of occurred to me in that moment how ridiculous the whole situation was like why why was I the person who was feeling ashamed he should have been the one feeling shame. And if he didn't feel shame, well, honey, I could help him with that. (laughs) So I know that premature ejaculation is something that men are insecure about. And I'm like, I'm, I'm a good person. I'm not the kind of person who goes around exploiting other people's insecurities. I also know that intentionally humiliating an anti-feminist does not make a new feminist. But with this motherfucker, I could not bring myself to care. I just sort of looked at him and smiled and thought, this is gonna suck for you. This is gonna suck for you almost as much as sucking you sucked for me. I walked up to the bar and said to the bartender, I'm gonna need three shots of whiskey, two for me and one for you. And also, I'm gonna need to tell you a little story about that guy over there. Yeah, the one who looks like Ryan Gosling. The bartender thought my story was hilarious, and so did the bar back and the door guy and all of my friends and this random cute drummer from one of the bands that was playing that night and every other person in all of the other bands that were playing that night and just about, you know, everyone else in the bar. It turns out that most of us can really rally around a good tale about a misogynist who's really bad at having sex with women. And at that point in my life, I did not consider myself a performer. Like, the only times I had been on stage, it had been to move set pieces around between scenes dressed in my theater blacks. I was, like, terrified of the spotlight. I'd never even spoken into a microphone. But there I was in this bar with an audience hanging on my words. And it occurred to me for the first time that not only did I really enjoy making people laugh, but I was pretty damn good at it, too. So, sure... I accidentally gave a chauvinist a blowjob, but Eric accidentally aided in the empowerment of a woman. So these are just some of the dangers of online dating, I guess. Eric uh, is not the most self-aware dude in the world, but there's no way he didn't notice the way that all of the laughing bar patrons seemed to fall silent as he walked by. He decided not to stick around until last call. But me, 
I stayed until 2 a.m. And when I did finally leave, I was accompanied by the cute drummer from the touring band. We met up with this girl that I'd been crushing on and we had this wild, amazing threesome until like five in the morning. It was like the phoenix of sluttiness rising from its own ashes. After that night, I kind of couldn't wait until the next time I'd run into Eric Blowjob Tree. And it's happened a few times since then. And he always pretends that he doesn't see me, but there's no way he can't feel my warm smile. Because I always get so happy when I see him. I love that guy. He's like, I adore him. I adore him as a symbol of all of the shit that I don't put up with anymore. And I adore him as the motivating force that he was in my career as a storyteller and a comedy writer. I have zero regrets about that night in the tree because in the end, the pleasure that I get from telling this story has become the orgasm that Eric neglected to give me. Thank you. Uh, now we're ready to slide right into the religious portion of the evening. Is everyone ready for some hallelujahs? Amen. <laughs> uh, someone who was also raised in a v very devout sort of school system like I was. I want to bring our next storyteller to the stage. He's performed stories all over town, but he's pretty new at the whole thing. He's a volunteer at the Cook County Jail where he started doing some storytelling training. Now that is fucking cool. Yeah. Those are the kind of stories that need to be told. You can find him at jacobycochran.com. Please welcome to the stage, Jacoby Cochran! Growing up, my older brother was Jesus Christ. I don't mean that sarcastically or sacrilegiously. I mean, when I was in the sixth grade, and my older brother Josh was in the seventh grade, he was cast as Jesus Christ in our school's musical reprisal of the Passion Play. If you're not familiar with the Passion Play, that's okay. You probably know it as the trial and brutal execution of Jesus Christ. Oh, but this wasn't just some elementary school sing-along, no. This was billed as a religious experience our school took very seriously. You see, my brother and I went to an all-black Catholic school on the south side of Chicago. What is what? Yes, it exists, an all-black Catholic school on the south side of Chicago. My brother and I were uh, baptized, received communion, and confirmed Catholic. As a former altar boy and at the time aspiring pastor, I found it interesting that our school was able to blend everything it loved about Catholic church, the one hour mass, the Eucharist, with everything it loved about black church, the big hats and the dope ass music, <laughs> right? And again, our school celebrated Christmas and Easter in the true spirit of Catholicism. But you better believe we also celebrated Kwanzaa in that motherfucker. Mm -hmm. 
adorned from head to toe in kente cloth, professing the gospel of Kuchichagalia. Seriously, our school loved God so much that students could opt out of recess and go to the fifth grade classroom for a prayer circle. I'm pretty sure it wasn't sanctioned by the Catholic Church because uh, the teacher played the latest in black gospel music. Students were allowed to sing and scream and shout, a stark contrast to the calm temperament of the Catholics. And uh, he would throw these Kamehameha-like blessings at students, <laughs> causing them to pass out or start speaking in tongues. I'm not bullshitting you. Now, despite my uh, deep religiosity, I never was compelled by the spirit of Jesus to speak another language or pass out. Honestly, you could say that those moments probably were the first seeds of doubt. <laughs> creating this voice in the back of my head that wasn't too certain about all of this. Eventually, I stopped going to the prayer circles, not because of doubt, uh, but because one time, I promise you, a student was, by all accounts, possessed by the devil. No, nah, I swear to God, I watched that shit. <laughs> he was running around the class, growling and screaming pool right out of an episode of Supernatural, like season five, though, when that shit was popping. <laughs> and he was running around screaming, bitch, this and motherfuck that. And eventually the teacher had to restrain him and put his hand on his head and say, in the name of Jesus, get out of this boy, devil. In the name of Jesus. And so as you can imagine, I didn't go back to the prayer circles. <laughs> now, my brother never went to either the prayer circles. He was never an altar boy, but he was cast perfectly as Jesus Christ. You see, my brother had a voice from heaven. When we were kids, he was honestly one of the best youth singers in all of Chicago. Man, if, if there was YouTube when we was kids, my brother would have been the black Justin Bieber. <laughs> Minus the you know, shit that makes Justin Bieber Justin Bieber. With that being said, I mean, if you give my brother $150 million at that age, he would have probably pissed on some things and bought a monkey too. Oh, and he earned that voice. You see, we had an absentee Joe Jackson kind of a dad. He was never around long enough to really be physically abusive, but he was psychologically tormenting. And every month or year we would see him, my brother was forced to do these intense vocal drills. He was forced to sing the songs of New Edition, Boys to Men, Temptations, Jackson 5, doing them in repetition, each time having to focus on just one member of the group's part. Yeah, yeah. My father was convinced my brother was gonna be the next Michael Jackson. We never really questioned his behavior. I guess it was all part of the plan. Uh, me, I never attended the Joe Jackson vocal camp. So when they were casting roles and my brother was so perfectly fit as Jesus Christ, there wasn't really a part that just jumped out for me, you know? Um, so I was cast as Pontius Pilate. Yeah, if you're not familiar with the Passion Play or the trial and brutal execution of Jesus Christ, Pontius Pilate is the fella who sentences Jesus to die. Yeah. Now, while my school took religion very seriously, honestly, I saw this as an opportunity to torment my brother. 
he had all the solos, all the lines. I only had a couple infamous lines, and I took every opportunity to practice them. When he was sitting in our shared bedroom on his bed with the lights completely off, his eyes closed, practicing the solo he sings in the desert while he spends 40 days and 40 nights fighting temptation, I snuck under the bed. Right when he got to the climax of that solo, I whispered out, Jesus, I sentenced you to crucifixion and I washed my hands of this. When he was in the shower, belting out the solo that takes place just after Judas betrays him, I kicked in the door like Samuel L. Jackson in every Samuel L. Jackson movie and said, listen here, Jesus, motherfucker. I sentenced you to crucifixion, motherfucker. And I washed my hands of this motherfucker. I probably sentenced my brother to die at least a hundred times in the months preceding that play. Now, it wasn't all fun and games. There was still a matter of this voice in the back of my head. And being selected as Pontius Pilate, the man who, for all practical purposes, is the last one to question Jesus Christ, I figured asking questions was part of my method. Getting into character. I had some questions that had been lingering for years. Grew up in a community where we all knew Jesus loved us. You know, there's the certainties, death and taxes in our community. It was death, taxes, and God's plan. So as Pontius Pilate, I went to my sixth grade teacher. She taught us religion, and I asked her, last year in fifth grade, I watched on television as this plane just rammed into this building. Why is that God's plan? She couldn't answer me. She looked at me and just explained as such. We can't know everything, but it's God's plan. Trust me. Okay. I went to my uh, seventh grade teacher, the individual who taught seventh grade but taught us history, and I asked him. I said, right now, you're teaching us about slavery, about Jim Crow, segregation. Why is that part of God's plan? He didn't have an answer for me. He simply looked at me and told me, it's part of the plan. Now again, I was deeply religious at the time. And this character of Pontius Pilate was calling some real internal strife. I'd asked my parents, I'd asked my grandparents, and I was still getting the same answer, God's plan. So I dropped it. Finally, the day of the play arrives. And my brother and I have been practicing our ass off. But remember, this is still an elementary school. So there are other kids dressed as citizens and guards playing Joseph, Mary, the disciples. And everyone's in complete character. I'm standing on the inside balcony waiting for my scene, dressed from head to toe in my Kendrick Lamar robes. And while I'm standing in there, I can hear the crowd of students screaming insults at Jesus. And this voice in my head asks me, why do you think this is the plan? I tried to quiet the voice, 
focus on the lines I had coming up, the lines that I repeated to my brother over and over and over, but that voice was in the back of my head. Why is this the plan? Why is this the plan? Eventually, I walked out onto the balcony where my brother was being held by the other kids who were supposed to be pretending to beat Jesus. No, they are whooping his ass. <laughs> Yet my brother is staunchly in character. Clearly been hitting by one too many belts. And I come out to the crowd and I raise my hands and everyone falls quiet. And I begin. Are you the king? My brother picked his head up slowly and made eye contact with me and replied, if that is what the people say I am. At that point, something in me snapped. I had been asking questions of teachers and family members and now I thought I was asking Jesus Christ himself, why is this the plan? Why is this the plan? And that frustration just grew in my belly. I could feel my hands starting to twitch as I explained to him, Jesus, I sentence you to crucifixion and I wash my hands of this. At that moment, the voice in my head was no longer screaming, why is this the plan? Why is this the plan? It was screaming, there is no plan. There is no plan. There is no God. And in that moment, these questions that I had been asking teachers proved that religion may be this barrier. But at that moment, it revealed itself to also be a levy. A levy holding back an answer that at sixth grade, my brain was not ready to process. The voice in my head screaming, there is no plan. There is no plan. I came down from the balcony and joined in the procession. My brother was handed this huge wooden cross. As I said, they took religion very seriously. We began walking around the stations and he falls for the first time. And the students are screaming out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And I'm sitting there wondering why is this the plan? He picks himself up and he continues to walk. He comes in front of his mother, Mary, and the woman playing him, the young girl, is crying tears that have me asking myself, why does a young black girl from the south side of Chicago know pain like this? We continued walking as Veronica wiped his face. As he fell for the second time, as Simon helped him up and continued with the cross, and that voice in my head is still asking, why? 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 As we continue around, they throw my brother to the ground and pretend to nail him to the cross, beating onto the microphone, one after the next, after the next. He's hoisted up in front of the entire audience who at this point is sobbing. For them, this has truly been a religious awakening. Our entire community knows the story of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Yet I'm sitting there wondering, 
Why was this the plan? At that moment, my brother picks his head up and looks towards the sky and says, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. And that voice in my head responded, does your father know what he is doing? And that question broke my heart. I'm not sure if you've ever dealt with doubt before but to stand there surrounded by people clearly moved by this work and to feel alone, to feel that you can't ask anyone for comfort. You can't tell this entire group of black Catholics that maybe you don't believe in God, that maybe this isn't just a voice in the back of your head, maybe it's how you really feel. I went home that night completely crushed. I didn't want to be an altar boy. I didn't want to be a pastor. I didn't want to be Catholic. I said, if this world is part of God's plan, the buildings and the segregation, maybe I don't want to be a part of this. I went to my brother who was completely exhausted at this point. I may have been dealing with an existential crisis, but well, he was getting his ass whooped by a group of fifth and sixth graders. <laughs> I explained to him what I was experiencing and he reached out and he put his hand on my shoulder and simply told me he understood. I would go on to play Pontius Pilate one more time and my brother wouldn't pick up the role of Jesus again. But I don't think either of us ever really recovered from that day. And I'm not sure my faith has either. Thank you. This is Risk. This is the Shins behind me now. And we just heard from Jacoby Cochran. And Jacoby can be found at jacobycochran.com. Well, listen, are you looking to get a leg up at work or take your career to the next level? Well, with over 3 million members and more than 17,000 classes, Skillshare is the Netflix for online learning. 
You can take classes in graphic design, DSLR photography, social media marketing, digital illustration, and much more. Skillshare classes are taught by industry experts and experienced professionals. They're perfect if you're looking to build your career or start the side hustle of your dreams. I have taken Skillshare classes before and loved them. Right now I'm looking at one that teaches how Hitchcock, Alfred Hitchcock, would build suspense into his stories. And I'm also looking at a, a class on how to design your day, you know, a time management for creatives sort of class. They have lots of classes for entrepreneurs, you know, the brand strategy, business planning, public speaking. They have a lot of just creative stuff like watercoloring, calligraphy, that kind of stuff. I mean, it's an amazing resource. And now Skillshare is giving our listeners a one month free trial of unlimited access to over 17,000 classes. Go to Skillshare.com slash risk to start your free month today. That's Skillshare.com slash risk to start your free month. And tis the season to send flowers to the special people on your holiday list. Do what I do and send gorgeous holiday flowers, wreaths, and handcrafted garlands from the Books. The Books Flower Company, that's short for bouquets, is a unique experience unlike any other online flower service. Books flowers are always farm fresh, delivered direct from their sustainable, eco-friendly farms to your table. With Books, you get weeks of fresh flowers, not days. Wide selection of artisan designed flowers, holiday garlands, handcrafted wreaths with simple one price pricing and check out without all the upsells. Books start at just $40 with free weekday delivery. Books guarantees the freshest, longest lasting flowers or your money back. They even have farms on the side of a volcano. Brighten someone's holiday with flowers, holiday garlands, and handcrafted wreaths from the Books. Order your holiday Books by Friday, December 15th for guaranteed delivery by Christmas and get an extra 15% off when you enter the code RISK. That's B-O-U-Q-S dot com and use the code RISK to save 15%. Books dot com. Our final story today comes from the fabulous Maureen Muldoon. You can find her at MaureenMuldoon.com. Here she is now at the Risk Live show in Chicago with the story we call The Babies. So, my story starts off um, being raised in an overpopulated Catholic family in New Jersey. And uh, I had five older sisters and two younger brothers and a uh, small house. And my dad was a huge fan of uh, Candy Camera, Alan Font. Like, anything uh, funny, he was all about it. And he loved to encourage us to pull pranks on each other and neighbors and relatives as much as we could. And yeah, he was totally into it. And my mom was really into church. 
So uh, we kids kind of leaned towards my dad and uh, we went about, you know, pulling pranks as much as we could. And uh, one day my mom told us that she was going to have a priest come over for dinner. And we were like, oh, yes. This is gonna be great, a priest, you know? Gonna get the priest, we're gonna pay a prank on the priest and we're gonna freak out the priest. We were so excited and my sister Mary pulled us all into one of the bedrooms and she was the oldest and she was a Star Trek fan and she had seen this episode of Star Trek where the kids, the maniacal children are like humming. Did you guys see that one? It starts off low, right? And they're like, nah, 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 nah. And then it gets louder, nah, 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 and then louder, nah, 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 and then like Spock is like freaking out, and so she's like, this is what we're gonna do to the priest. This is exactly what we're gonna do to the priest. At dinner time, I'm gonna say, please pass the pepper, which was never on our table, I don't know why. Irish, I guess, what? And um, that's when you guys are gonna start humming, like low at first, and then let it build, you know, really loud, and then let it just rip the ceiling off, and then when we get really, really loud, I'm gonna smack the table, and that'll be your cue to everyone cross their hands across their chest, like we've seen the dead people at, you know, Preston's funeral parlor, press your hands against your chest, and then click your feet underneath the benches so you can hold yourself as you lean back and say, Pray for the dead, and the dead will pray for you. <laughs> so we were like, this is brilliant, Mary. This is so brilliant. We're so excited to be in your production of Freak Out the Priest. And so we like rehearsed, and we were all right. We were so juiced up. It was like eight little kids running around like, oh my God, we're going to get him. And so we watched from the window of our house, like waiting for him to show up. And if one of us says something, all eight of us have to repeat it. So it's like, he's here, he's here, he's here, he's here. And he's coming out of his car, he's coming out of his car. And he has a huge box. And we're like, what the hell's a box for? And he's got this huge box. And he's walking up our walkway and we're like, huh, what's that about? It kind of throws us off a little bit. Comes in the door and he makes like this weird eye contact with my mom. And they have this knowing exchange. And I'm like eight at the time, so we're all really little. And he comes in, he puts his big box down on the table. We're all very intrigued and he reaches into the box and he pulls out this very large jar. It's like a very large pickle jar. And it's filled with like murky water, like um, the upside down world. <laughs> yeah. And inside the murky water is a baby. Yeah a dead baby with the umbilical cord and the placenta and we're standing there like little kids like what is happening and he starts to explain to my mother how to take care of the bottled babies because there's three of them there's three and there's different ages on them and uh he says you know you got to really be careful with them they're very precious and you have to protect them I'm thinking, like, isn't it too late to, for that? <laughs> and my sister Erin asks him that. Uh, protect him from what? And he leans in on us and he says, witches. <laughs> and I'm thinking, like, witches? Like, I'll get you my pretty, like, like broomsticks and, like, wart noses. And, like, what do you mean, witches? Like, those aren't real. At eight, I even know that witches aren't real. <laughs> And so my sister Erin says to him, like, witches like broomstick witches? And he's like, no, 
No, these are not broomstick witches. These are witches that look just like you and me. And that scared the fuck out of me. <laughs> I was like, we don't even know that they are witches because we can't tell, so they could be like among us? Like, who knows? And we're like, what, what, why do we have to protect the babies? And he's like, because they will use them for human sacrifice. Okay, so I'm sitting in my dining room with a priest holding a dead baby, telling us about witches and human sacrifice. I'm eight, I'm gonna need therapy. <laughs> but we still had a production. <laughs> so we put the babies on the mantle. This is an odd occurrence, but yes. We put the babies on the mantle because it's dinner time. <laughs> So we sit down for dinner and we wait our cue and my sister's like, please pass the pepper. And we're like, nah, this time the priest earned this, right? So we're going for it. So we're like, nah, 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 nah. And we're getting more and more into it. And my mom's like, what the hell? Jim, make them stop. She's screaming across the table to my father. <laughs> and she's like totally freaking out. And we're like, yes, we're like in this. And she's like, Boom, she slaps and we're like, pray for it. It's all the more weird to have three babies watching you perform this <laughs> horrible. But we felt like, we, and then we started laughing and it was so funny. My dad, we look at him and he's got like this proud smile on his face. <laughs> Total sucker for showbiz. <laughs> and the priest is like staring at the cauliflower and he apparently had to leave early. So um, I think we were successful. <laughs> um, but after he left, we were sort of a little curious about what to do with these, where would, they, where would they stay and where would they live? Our house wasn't that big. So we decided, you know, we should put them back in the box, first of all, that would be a first step. And then um, we all decided that we would take them to the sun parlor, because the sun parlor was a room in our house that didn't get much action. It was really hot in the summertime and it was really cold in the wintertime. And it was just like this big old room, you might have one, where we just like shoved shit that we didn't know what to do with, you know? It's like an old rickety piano and like toys that we loved that were broken but we didn't want to get rid of them yet. And like newspapers and books that we were supposed to read and or, you know, science projects and all this kind of shit just like went into the sun parlor. So it was a perfect home for three dead babies. <laughs> oh so we put those babies up on top of this rickety old bookshelf and the reason that they came to my house was because my mom was actually like the president or the sheriff or the deputy of Right to Life in New Jersey. And uh, so she was uh, charged and she was very proud of her position and she was really into her Catholicism. She was like, this was her identity. This was big stuff for her, it meant a lot. And so she was very you know, proud to have these babies in our house and she was ready to roll with them. But what happened next was that um, something else visited our house, which was my mom's breast cancer. And that took her down pretty fast. And uh, within a couple of years, she wasn't able to get off the couch, so the babies didn't get out either. So it was around that time that I got sick from school one day. I was bored out of my mind, and I was like shuffling around the house, and I was like, I should go into the sun parlor. <laughs> and so I did. And immediately I saw that box, and I was like, oh, that box of dead babies. And <laughs> The priest was like, don't touch them and don't look at them. I was like, I gotta get a look at those dead babies. 
And there was a place within me that was like, don't do it, don't do it. And I was like, I can't help myself. I need to get the babies. And I like went, <laughs> went over to this, you know, and I was really short, so I like had to get up on my tippy toes and I'm like pulling this box of three bottled babies onto my way. And it was like very heavy. And I was like, oh no, this might be a bad idea. But like I got it down and I put it on top of the piano and I was like, all right, this is, this is, this is working out. And um, it's gonna be okay. And yeah, and I reach into the box, just as I seen the priest do, and I pull out this bottled baby. And But in this light, in the sun parlor, it's so much brighter. And I'm mesmerized by it. It's, it's like a human snow globe to be standing here. <laughs> and it has little teeny eyes and little teeny fingers and no hair, and it's beautiful. And... Um, I'm staring at it. I don't remember what I was thinking. But all I know is that this was the most, one of the most horrifying moments of my life. Is that I have this bottled baby. And then suddenly I feel my hands together and I hear a smash. Yeah. And I don't remember fumbling. I don't remember it slipping. It was like a wrinkle in time. It was just gone. <laughs> And at my feet is formaldehyde. And it's the sun parlor, so it's not a clean place. And it's seeping into everything, and there's a glass halo around this little bird of a baby laying on the floor. And my mom's voice in the background, what's going on in there? And I'm like, nothing, it's all good. Because I'm staring down at this little dead baby. And I know that if she comes in that I'm dead. Like, if she comes in, I'm dead. She will kill me. I will be pickled in a bottle of formaldehyde. I will be shipped off to another parish at what could happen for girls who look at things that they're not supposed to. Like, this, I'm fucked, basically. So, I get to work, you know? I get to work, and I lean down, and I start to take the newspapers that I find there, and I'm resourceful, and I'm wiping up the formaldehyde, and it's like that horrible smell of, like, death and rotting food. It just cuts right into you and I'm chucking it into the garbage can and then I get to the glass part and I start to pick that up too and I'm sticking in my boots because any minute she could get off the couch anyhow I, I continue and next thing is the baby and I don't know what to do with the baby and I look around and my heart's beating and I'm really scared and I keep looking at this little baby and I feel horrible because I don't want to touch it because it smells and also the witches you know, I mean, right? I mean, that, I'm, I'm 10, I'm like, you know, this is bad. So I grab two books and I make like a little makeshift shovel and I bring it up to my eyesight and then I, I just gently put it into the garbage and I put the books in there too because they touch the baby and I don't know what else to do with them. And then I tie up the garbage, and then I do the thing I've never done before or since, is I take the garbage out to the curb. And like, if that wasn't a red flag for my mom, I mean, she's definitely blinded by her pain. And so I come back in, and I'm like, oh, thinking actually on the way into the house, I had this thought like, okay, you know, that little baby was stuck in that like horrible, 
purgatory like and it wasn't supposed to be in there and maybe this way at least it will find its way back to the earth like that was my thought you know I was kind of making myself feel better but anyway I get back into the house and no one's any the wiser you know my house is chaotic all the kids come home from school and a couple of months go by and you know everything's just fine in fact I forget about the whole incident until the priest calls and they want their babies back and my mom's like, okay, Mary, go get the box of babies. Priests are gonna come and pick them up. And Mary goes and she gets the babies and she brings them into the coffee table in the dining room, in the living room, and she's like, oh, there's only two babies in there. And my mom's like, there's only two babies in there. And then everyone in my house is like, there's only two babies, there's only two babies. And I'm like, yeah, there's only two babies. What happened? My mom's like, well, go get the other baby. And they're like, okay. And so they go into the sun parlor and we look around because I have to play along with this. And uh, it's not there. And she's like, what do you mean? And they're like, it's not in the sun parlor. She's like, well, where could it? Look in the attic. Look in the baby. Go upstairs. You guys, find the baby. How could we have lost a baby? We, have, we can't lose a baby. She was so upset, you know, because this was her thing, right? And uh, so my family starts running around the house looking for something that I know is long gone. And I start feeling horrible, like horrible, because my mom's sick. And now she's upset. And she's bald and she's thin and she's sitting on the couch. And uh, I want to tell her, but I don't know how. So my sisters all come back in and they're like, Mom, we can't find the baby. And she's like, what do you mean you can't find the baby? And she starts to get emotional. And my sister Erin goes up to her and she's like, Mom, it's gonna be okay. Mom, it's gonna be okay. And then she puts her hand on her shoulder and she's like, Mom, maybe the witches came and got it. <laughs> and I see this information register on all of my siblings' faces, like a witch came in our house and stole a baby? Oh my God, that's horrible. And I'm like, Oh, that is horrible. <laughs> and I look at my mom, and I realize there's no way that I can tell anyone ever, I'm the witch. <laughs> Thank you.
all for this week's episode, folks. This is Sufjan Stevens behind me now. I could swear we've run this song on the show before, but it looks like we haven't. I, I just chose it for the title, Chicago. And if you like it, <laughs> he put out about nine different versions of it. He went all Bob Dylan on this one. All right. We just heard from Maureen Muldoon. What a fabulous storyteller. You can find her online at MaureenMuldoon.com. Now I'm going to let you know where Risk is appearing next. Holy cow. Our December 16th Los Angeles show at the Bootleg Theater. And our December 19th show at Littlefield in Brooklyn. Those are going to be our holidays shows. Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, New Year's, all that. <laughs> and, oh my gosh, both those. I, we're going to have more stories than we can use in our Christmas episode this year. But it's such great people on both those lineups. December 16th in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. And December 19th in Brooklyn at Littlefield. Come on out, everyone. Now, January 20th, we're back at the bootleg in Los Angeles. And January 20th, I will be bringing the show to San Francisco, to the Swedish American Hall for uh, San Francisco Sketch Fest. Guy Branham, Dana Gould, Biz Ellis, and Marcella Aguerlo. Our, our, our Guello, our Guello, I get her name wrong. Oh, that's... Yeah! Marcella Arguello <laughs> is the fourth person that we're having at our San Francisco show on and the date has been erased from the Excel sheet because Excel is so user unfriendly. But I remember it. I have it in my memory. It's January 20th that we are in San Francisco at the Swedish American Hall with that fabulous cast, so come see us. Now, on January 26th, on January 26th, we are at Caveat in Manhattan. Okay, so on January 26th, we won't be in Brooklyn. We'll be back in Manhattan for that night at a place called Caveat on the Lower East Side, so definitely come out for that. And I think that's all I have to announce as far as live shows go for the time being. Now, you must know that storytelling is a fabulous gift to give at this time of year. If you go to thestorystudio.org, that is where we uh, have created video courses. We have one-on-one -on -one sessions that I teach to people over Skype, in-person workshops that you can get gift certificates there at thestorystudio.org. Org. Also, if you go to our shop on, on the Risk site, you can get people season one and season two of the show, all our all-star episodes. There's our Patreon as well at patreon.com slash risk. You can give to us, give us a gift and help keep Risk running by going to patreon.com slash risk. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
with an asterisk Rough redacted words about a kinky frisk Do you fear a staring eye and a tisk, tisk, tisk Will you live in fear? Are you gonna take a risk? Gonna take a risk.